You're listening to Early Doors Football Podcast with host Mark Roach and co-host Dylan Kerr, Tom Watt and Sherelle Casal, a For The Now media production. So now I'm delighted to welcome Wael Al-Kadi, who's the owner of Bristol Rovers since 2016. Well, welcome to the Early Doors Football Podcast. You, you're from Jordan and your, your family are the founders of the Arab Jordan Investment Bank and you still hold a senior role there, I know. And you've also been involved, as well as Bristol Rovers, you, you're involved in the Jordan Football Association um, for 10 years now. And I was reading up uh, before this a um, little bit about your, your background. I know you came to boarding school in London in the 1980s. You went to a Chelsea match, fell in love with football, Chelsea fan. So I'd like to start by asking you firstly, how much was your love of football behind wanting to buy a football club? But then why did you decide to buy Bristol Rovers? So um, actually, um, I was football mad as as far as I can remember since a young age, uh, even before when I went to to England. And um, growing up uh, in Qatar, where my father worked, um, you know, Qatar is a, is a football crazy country and, and there's nothing to do except, you know, play football there. So um, before going to school um, in London, I was already, you know, um, quite into football and following English football in particular because, you know, we had a big English uh, expat community in Qatar and um, they always had English football uh, um, to watch on TV. So uh, I was pretty um, well versed about all the English uh, uh, setup before coming to England. And um, my my father, he bought an apartment in Chelsea in the mid 70s. So and I went to school, Westminster School, which is close by. The only football club around was Chelsea and being football crazy. I used to go and watch Chelsea um, you know, in the early 80s when they were really bad in, in the you know, bottom of the second division and, and um, went, followed them home and away. Uh, so um, really passionate about football. And um, after graduating from, from the States, uh, I went back home to Jordan where I worked and eventually became um, involved with my federation there, became an executive member. And um, through that became... Um, uh, well connected in a network with FIFA and UEFA and a lot of clubs that were involved with our work um, in the in the uh, Jordan FA, um, and uh, you know that opened my eye up more into the industry and and you know people in the industry were like why don't you you know um, venture in uh, so you know, after a lot of research in in different clubs in in on the European continent, um, I finally, you know, decided to go after what um, I always knew uh, where the club should be in the UK because, you know, the football industry is part of the culture, it's well established, it's well protected as as an industry. Um, So I I took my time, looked at several different clubs and then the opportunity at Rovers came up and we just started talking to them and... uh, couple of months later and six years down the road, here we are. <laughs> so basically it's, it was the potential of the club, you know, it was, it's a fundamentally strong um, football uh, club, you know, well, well, 
one of the oldest clubs around, uh, very well supported. Um, the city of Bristol, second largest city in the south after London. It's only you know one hour, ten minutes by train from London. Um, so it ticked all all the boxes. The potential of the club for me, um, the desire to make improvements in the club, um, uh, build up the infrastructure, and um, basically to look to build uh, sustainability to hopefully move up the football pyramid. Well, um, you know, it's, it's a pleasure to meet you and it's a pleasure to speak to you. Um, it's, it's, interesting what, what, it's interesting with what you're saying because I've worked in four continents, um, you know, and I've, I've, I've never worked in England, but I've, I've played most of my professional career I was in England and Scotland. And obviously working in Africa and Asia, especially at a professional level, you know, it, it, it's, it's quite refreshing to, to hear, um, you know, why you, why, you, why you came into football and your, your hopes, your dreams, your desires, compared to like, you know, working with a lot of African presidents or African chairmen uh, and Asian chairmen and, and owners because they, they seem to be in it for, for financial uh, gain rather than to, to, to be in with football. I'm not saying all of them, but it, it's, it's refreshing to hear that, that you, 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 you took your time, you obviously looked into other clubs, and like you said, Bristol is the second largest city outside of London. You know, it's, it's, it's a typical Bristol City, Bristol Rovers, Sheffield Wednesday, Sheffield United... Uh, Aston Villa, Birmingham. They, you know, it's, it's it's one of them clubs that they have grown big history. They have grown a long, long history. Because I remember, you know, I played at I played at Bristol Rovers twice um, in my career for Reading, um, and and I love that ground. And I mean, it's it's just, like I say, it's just refreshing to hear that you know you, you you've got you've got this you know this vision, this plan, and. How do you think it's? How do you think now with football the way it's changed over the last couple of years with COVID? How do you think that's affected any of that? You know uh, what you what you've been trying to achieve. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, even before COVID, if if you look at uh, Bristol as um, a city or even the southwest area, um, the other club in in Bristol and us, uh, we we have been starved of footballing success. Uh, and um, one of my, you know, uh, desires is, is to try and, and turn that around for Bristol Rovers. Um, now, COVID uh, did come in and, and, you know, caused havoc. It was a nightmare. It was a, a big, uh, you know, big nightmare to deal with. And, and I'm really, really pleasantly surprised um, uh, I, I really thought we would not only lose a couple, a couple of clubs in the pyramid, I thought we'd lose a division. Uh, but um, all credit to all owners who, who really, you know, stepped up to the plate and, and kept the clubs going and, and so far have survived uh, this horrible period. So, um, um, yeah, it, it's, um, I, I guess this comes from, you know, uh, having the passion and the desire and um, uh, wanting, wanting, I feel, you know, that I'm a gas head now and um, that all, all that matters is that the club does have success for me. That's, that's all that matters. Which is kind of a nice link to your manager, Joey Barton, passionate player, 
Uh, I'm sure he's uh, the same as, as a manager. What's your relationship like with, with Joey, you know, as, as a person and um, as, as a football manager and the manager of your club? Yes, it's very good. I mean, we've structured um, uh, the club in a way that Joe and I only talk about the football matters in the club. And we have other quality people around him that take care of um, the other parts of, of uh, the, the business, basically, and the club. Um, so, so, you know, he's, he's a really good young manager. Um, he's very passionate about the club. Um, he's very demanding in, in terms of standards and expectations um, of all everybody in the club, all players and staff, and and he's really committed to take the club forward. Um, uh, so basically, uh, it's a good relationship. Um, he's ambitious and desperate to have success with us. Uh, the support staff that he has brought in are you know of high quality. Um, and, and as a result, you know, the standard of coaching sessions and all operations at the training ground um, are of quite um, a high standard or at least the best that I've seen in my time at Rovers. That's good because the next question is, you know, from, from, a, from a coach's point, right, you, you've, you, you've obviously... You're speaking very, very highly of Joey, and Joey is, 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 is he does what he, what he, he does what he says on the tin. You know, that's how he played, that's how he coaches, and you know, it's at the end of the day. Again, I'm doing this on personal experience. It doesn't matter who you are or where you coach; it's what players you have to get you to that next level, and you know how how do you how do you go around supporting that network of in bringing in or you finding the right players, but getting the players to actually want to play for the manager, to play for the head coach, to play for Bristol Rovers. How do you instill it into players? Because uh, that's the biggest, biggest thing that I found out uh, coaching abroad. If you get players to play for you, they will they will run through brick walls and win you games. And it, and, it, and it's a proven fact. Um, from from so how do you how how how, how does the players so, uh, I mean, if you look at my time at Rovers, I've always uh, supported um, whoever has been in charge um, uh, as a manager at the club. And um, uh, when Joe came in, um, he quickly realised what was needed uh, to do, you know, in player recruitment. And um, uh, I think we, we, we got rid of 20 plus players and he... Um, he signed around 18 uh, players uh, recruited by him and his team. Um, from what I've seen uh, from the players, you know, um, technically, uh, you know, we have a balance of tef technically gifted players and players that have experience um, and won promotion from League Two. Um, so, so he's created a very good squad um, that has a good balance to it. A very good spirit um, and they're a very very close-knit group and um, from what I've seen um, you know they 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 really will run through a brick wall for Joe um, uh, we've been really unlucky with with injuries we, we have around 10 first team players injured uh, it, it's been you know just a series of bad luck but um, it has been a slow start, but as you know, you know, a new squad 
needs a bit of time. And uh, we've seen it recently with performances. Uh, performances simply were not there at the beginning of the season. But recently, it's uh, the performances have been quite, quite well. And, you know, with a bit of, um, uh, you know, better luck here and there, we, we could have won three or four games uh, in the last 10. So it's turning around, I think. How important is it for you, and obviously with your experience in investment banking, to really make sure those solid foundations are in place and build from there? Because you've seen other clubs that have, you know, they've been at the top and they've kind of fallen away. A couple of you know, really big clubs in, in League One that, that are struggling now. Um, you know, how, how do you... How do you feel about making sure you get the foundations right for long-term success? Yeah, so basically, you know, um, the club has never had or owned a training ground before. Um, and um, finally, finally, we do have a training ground which the club uh, owns. And it's, it's quite, um, uh, quite a good one, uh, so I'm told by the professionals. Um, they're very happy with it. We have two and a half uh, top quality Premier League pitches, uh, a clubhouse, uh, a, a huge gym with, you know, fully equipped and uh, physiotherapist area. So uh, the clubhouse has everything in it, you know, changing rooms, kitchen, players lounge, uh, offices for the backroom staff and, and all the uh, supporting staff. So um, that, that, that's quite a, um, a good achievement. Um, uh, basically, uh, what we have focused on is professionalizing our operations, if you'd like, and then setting the standard, uh, trying to raise it to, to a higher level and, and continually um, improve throughout the club, uh, restructuring departments. I mean, we've, we've tried our best in, in the current stadium to, to make it more fan friendly. We, we've uh, done a completely new uh, shop we've we've done all the bars uh, so um it, it's it's continuously improving the infrastructure at the club so that we uh, try and, and get to that point where we can reach sustainability and at the same time of course developing the young players um, and growing the fan base and concentrating on, on um, all parts of the business and our community, which is very important to us. We're a family club and we, uh, it's very important for us to keep the, the relationship uh, with the community as strong as can be. Well, going, going back to Mark's question, because like I said, I was a player at Reading and Mark was a fantastic supporter of the football club. You know, we, we went, and this is, I'm talking 93 when I joined, you know, we, I think the average Gate was four thousand, but because of the success we had on the field, you know, it, you know, in, in that first six months, we were playing in front of 11, 12, 13,000 at Elm Park. We had a product both on and off the pitch with uh, with the supporters, and 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 I see that that sometimes goes missing now in football. You know that that link between supporters and players, because at the end of the day, you know, the the players have got to play for the supporters to come and pay to support the club and like I said, as a family club, uh, that's where you, you, you're going to get more success and hopefully start climbing that league and hopefully this season get minimum into a playoff position. You're absolutely right. I mean, the club as a community club um, is what it is. It's, it's at its core. It's, it's a community club. Um, and yeah, I'm, I've been very passionate about making everybody 
uh, feel welcome um, with us at the club. Um, you know, even our kit, for example, we, we um, our kit launch celebrated the diversity of the city um, uh, uh, with fans from all backgrounds with, with a picture of the city on, on our shirt. So we try to do these things and, and, you know, to help our community and serve the community. A lot of that was done during COVID, for example. Um, we kept in touch with the elderly uh, fans of ours. Um, so, so yeah, we, we, that's a core part of, of what we try to do. Well, thanks uh, so much for, for being a, a guest, Well, and uh, great to have you on the show and an owner of a club. And we both wish you uh, the best of success for the future. And, and we'll be keeping our, our eye on you. But yeah, thanks uh, very much for being a guest. My absolute pleasure. Thank you, Mark. And thank you, Dylan. Thank you so much. And now I'm joined by former West Ham player Jeff Pike. Jeff, welcome to the show. And just by way of an introduction, you joined West Ham as a 10-year-old in 1966, obviously that famous year for English football. And you, you played for them as a professional from, I think it was 1972 until 87. Um, and among your many achievements in the game, you won the FA Cup in 1980. And of course, you um, you got to play with World Cup winners Jeff Hurst and Bobby Moore. Um, but it wasn't West Ham only. Uh, obviously, that was a large part of your career. But you did go on to become club captain at Knox County and also play for Leighton Orient. And then you went into coaching and you worked with the Football Association as head of a team of national coach developers. Um, such an amazing career and so many fantastic memories, I'm sure. But can you remember all, all the way back to when you joined West Ham as a 10-year-old in, in 66 and what you were hoping for and what your thoughts and feelings were at that time? Um, uh, hi, Mark, and it's, it's nice to talk to you. Um, uh, to be absolutely 100% honest with you, I didn't have a clue. I was nine, ten years old, and uh, my uh, school teacher, uh, a, a Welsh guy named Mr. Jones, because I think every school had Welsh teachers at that particular time, um, had contacted West Ham without my knowledge at all and said, because yeah, I was playing uh, in the school team as, as, a, as a youngster. I started playing in the school team when I was eight years of age uh, out on the left wing. They shoved me out on the left wing um, uh, wearing number 11 ironically um, and uh, um, he contacted West Ham totally out of the blue and said you need to have a look at this boy and they said we'll send him along so uh, my, my father took me down to Chadwell Heath um, one evening and I turned up at Chadwell Heath and uh, lo and behold John Lyle who was the youth team coach at the time um, was the person that was doing the coaching sessions on a Tuesday and Thursday evening and I walked in and he, he asked me what my name was, and I told him. He said, uh, how old are you? I said, I'm 10 years of age. He said, uh, well, you're a little bit young, but while you're here, you can join in. Uh, and when you consider nowadays that the uh, academies at professional clubs now are taking like boys in at seven, eight years of age, um, which is, my personal opinion is it's much, much too early. But um, at the end of the first session, he came up to me and said, make sure you're here Thursday. And that was the start of, my football career, not expecting it to go anywhere in, you know, at that time, not, not realising what was, uh, what was ahead of me, really, you know. So all I wanted to do was play football. Uh, and, and as a 10-year-old, um, 
you know, and obviously that year, 1966, um, big celebrations in, in the country. And of course, you went on to play with um, Jeff Hurst. I think we were we were in contact before this and you said that you, you played with Jeff Hurst and, and Bobby Moore. What, what was that experience like for you? Well, it was, it was right at the end of their career at West Ham. And I joined West Ham in 1972, as you quite rightly said. And um, I'd had an opportunity to play in a reserve team fixture where uh, Bobby, just before he left to go to Fulham, was uh, playing behind me. I was playing in central midfield and Jeff Hurst was playing up front. And uh, there was an incident in the game where I went to head the ball and one of the, I think it we was down at Cardiff, I think, uh, one of their players uh, put his boot in where it where it shouldn't have gone, you know. Especially nowadays, it's not a, not allowed. And um, I got a, a caught on the side of the head, and Bobby was the first one there to check and see if I was all right. And um, as as my career went on, uh, and I started to play in the first team, uh, when you arrived at Upton Park, you 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 parked in the in the school playground, which was the car park walk through the gates and there was the barrier on the left-hand side pre the game was always closed so the fans couldn't get through, which they opened it up afterwards, uh, after the game. And uh, whenever Bobby was at the games, he used to stand just inside those barriers and he would make a point of coming up and shaking my hand and saying, good luck, I hope you play well today. Um, so to have that uh, and to be able to, um, you know, have those opportunities to, to be in and around those sorts of people, um, I find it very difficult at the moment, Mark, if I'm honest, to understand why reserve team football doesn't still exist. Um, and, you know, it's an opportunity for young players to play with the more experienced players that are potentially coming back for injury or a bit like Bobby and Jeff when they, when they were just about to leave the club and weren't in the, in the first team. Um, to learn from those experiences. And I I'm fully, fully believe that I learned, uh, I learned a huge amount while I was playing in the same team as these guys, because, you know, you, 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 learn, you learn different skills, you learn different things, and that's not anything to do with football. It's the way you might behave or the way you are uh, or you portray yourself on the field. Um, so uh, I, I think it's a real shame that, that reserve team football doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, and and you um, you did come through from a, a very young age, and and having that, you know, that few years before you got into the first team, how do you think that that helped with with your development being at the same club all, all that time before you actually got into the first team? Well, it was it was in, interesting because uh, um, I was at the club from ten years of age, and when it got to when I got to fifteen. And it was a situation where I was going to, uh, was I going to get an apprenticeship, which is what it was then called uh, in them days. Um, the club were dragging their heels and they didn't know whether they were going to sign me or not. And I had an opportunity to go to Ipswich for a week's trial. And I went up there and did a week's trial up there, stayed in a B&B with one of the other lads who was at West Ham at the same time. And... Um, well, on the very last day, we played a game against, uh, against the apprentices uh, at Ipswich on uh, at Portman Road. And at the, uh, at the end of the game, uh, Bobby Robson, who was the then manager, came up to me and said, um, what's happening with you? So I said, what do you mean? He said, well, uh, he, he said, are you going to be signing for another club or is there another club interested? So I said, well, I've been at West Ham, told him the story. And he said, well, I'll tell you something. He said, I want to sign you, yeah? and if you if you sign for me, he said you'll be in my first team within eighteen months. So 
when you consider the statue of Bobby Robson at that particular time, it was a, a bit of an eye opener to to a degree. And I I I went uh, and I said to him, well, look, you know, you know, my first first port of call is West Ham, but you know, obviously, I would consider that, and I need to go away and think about it. Um, so I went home and I, I rung a guy called Wally St. Pierre, who you may or may not have heard of, but he was the, the chief scout at West Ham at the time. Lovely, lovely man. Uh, God rest him. And uh, he, uh, I rang him up and said, look, do, do you know what's happening? And he said, well, why? I said, well, Ipswich are interested. And they said they're going to sign me if West Ham don't. He said, OK. He said, leave it with me. Five minutes later, the phone rang and said, we're signing you. So... Whether that was the, the nudge that they needed or not, I don't know, or whether it was just a, a coincidence. But Bobby phoned me three times the following week, personally, to ask me if, they, if I'd made a decision or not. Um, so it was, it, was a, it was quite a pressurised sort of uh, few days. But, you know, I feel in the end, uh, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, with the, the career that I've had, I, I obviously made the right choice. And some great, um, great moments at, at West Ham, of course. And, and I'm, I'm guessing the the FA Cup in 1980 being one of the the proudest moments in, in your career, you know. But there, there are many others as well. So you had um, experience in, in Europe, League Cup final. What, what do you pick out as um, not even necessarily highlights in terms of achievements, uh, achievements, but your you know, what, what's your favourite moment or moments from all of that time with West Ham? <laughs> well, it, it, it's interesting, uh, Mark, because what, what actually, I, I, I sort of got to the stage where um, I was in and around the first team and I, I was talking with uh, some ex-players last Friday night about certain things. And the first trip I ever went on was uh, with the first team was as a young player, a young apprentice. And they all, wherever they went on pre-season tour, they would take one of the young players with them to, for experience. And I got asked to go uh, to a place called Stavanger uh, in Norway. And I got on one of, the, one of the games for the last sort of 10 or 15 minutes. And, um, you know, which was obviously a great experience and gave me a taste for, for what was hopefully going to come. And then I got in and around the edge of the first team and was in and out and played the odd game here and there. Um, uh, and just before that, when in 76, when the uh, when we'd won the FA Cup, was in the Cup Winners' Cup, we played at a, a place called Den Haag. And um, I, I was on the bench. Uh, so I, I travelled to Den Haag because of the injury situation at the club. I was on the bench. And um, for both games, the home and away legs, uh, obviously it never got onto the field, unfortunately, but it was a great experience being in and around that. But around that time, I also got a phone call totally out of the blue from, from John saying, would I be interested in going out to America in the summer to play in the NASL? Um, uh, and I thought, well, why not? Uh, so I ended up doing two years, two summers out in the, uh, at the NASL. Uh, and that, again, was another experience that uh, potentially had an influence on me. I mean... You know, you talked about playing with, with Bobby and, and with Jeff, which was obviously a fantastic experience. I also played with Martin Peters, funnily enough, in a, in a charity football match uh, when we both retired. But uh, um, that was, uh, um, you know, obviously being able to play with all three of them that had been at West Ham when, when the World Cup was won was a great experience. But playing out in the, in the US, I played against uh, uh, some, some pretty well-known players out there as well. Um, 
uh, one renowned uh, name you might remember is Pelé. Uh, yeah. Another one you might remember is Eusebio. Uh, another one you potentially might remember is Beckenbauer. Yeah. Uh, oh, and there was a, there was an Irish fella playing out there that used to play for Man United called George Best. Have you ever heard yeah. of him? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, so to have those experiences of playing out in, you know, and, uh, and playing against those those caliber of people, you know, was 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 a fantastic experience. And then when when I when I came back, um, I'd had basically three seasons at home and two out in the, in the states without a break. And it got to Christmas. And Ron Greenwood called me in his office and said, if I didn't buck my ideas up, then my contract wouldn't be uh, extended. Um, so I then made every effort and ended up making my debut um, around that sort of time. So that, that was what maybe was the push that I needed. Um, but there, there was some, uh, you know, some great, great memories. You know, the, um, uh, the, the League Cup final, as an example, um, I, I'd established myself in the side by then, and um, you, they used to give um, a score in the in the, the Sunday newspapers. On each player got a score out of ten, and uh, you know for, for West Ham, I got top scores for uh, in, in in some of the papers the following day. So, you know, to think that I'd gone from being you know, sort of in and out of the side, and really being in and out of the side at the start of that season. Yeah. And it wasn't only for uh, the fact that Paul Allen got injured that enabled me to play central midfield and uh, and get up a uh, a relationship with Trevor that, that worked really, really well. And as a consequence of that, Paul ended up going to the uh, dark side and going over to Spurs. Um, but, you know, to, to then, you know, establish myself in the team in and around that time and between 1980, the cup final, and 86 when we finished third, to be in and around that environment over that period of time and to be part of what 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 happened at the football club that they, over those years was just you know a, a memory not to be forgotten and then you know 20 20 years at west ham you went on to um play for knox county and as i said club captain there and leighton orient as well and then you, you took the coaching route but you uh, you went on to work with the football association and, and uh, you were head of the national coach developers team. Um, obviously, a completely different type of experience. But what what did you you get from that pers personally in terms of your experience within football? Well, I, I'll I'll get to that if you don't mind. But um, basically, what what happened was um, uh, I I'd um, picked up an injury that was uh, probably going to end my career, which was a pelvic injury. And at the time, a, a, a fellow called John Gorman, who you may remember, uh, who ended up as one of the England coaches with Glenn Hoddle. Yeah. Uh, Glenn got the job at Swindon, his first managerial job, and took John Gorman with him. And John was the youth team coach at Lake Orient at the time. And Frank Clark, who was the then manager, um, called me in the office and said, what's happening with the injury? So I said, well, I've got three options. I can either try and play through it, which I don't think is an option. I can have an operation which will restrict my movement or I can retire. And he said, well, if you want to retire, there's a job here for you. I said, what job's that? He said, the youth team coach. So I went, OK, I'll retire. So it just happened at the right time uh, for me. And I then spent two years um, starting and I'm, I, I, I emphasize the word starting to learn to coach. Um, and it's been a long process. And, you know, even now, after so many years, I'm still learning, and what I don't, what what um, 
I find sometimes difficult to understand is, is play, players or, or coaches who go on coaching qualifications think that once they've got the coaching qualification, that's, that's all they need to do. But that's just the start. Um, yeah. And then as a consequence of that, after two years, uh, uh, Peter Eustace, who was a, a, an ex-West Ham player from many years ago, um, took over as Frank Clark's manager and then sacked me after two years as a youth team coach. So I came out of that and I actually spent all, all 18 months, almost two years without work, uh, out of work and, and signing on the dole, which is another experience that, you know, sort of makes you think about how you, how you work, what you do and how you do it. Um, and uh, out of the blue, a friend of mine who worked at a college called East, East Berkshire College in Slough contacted me and said, you know, there's a, there's a job here for you if you want. So I said, what is it? He said, well, it's just a, a, a job to uh, support the, the, the lecturers. Um, so I went, OK. He said, but he said, what I want you to do is to set up an academy here. Uh, and what we'll do is we'll encourage players that get released at 16 from the pro clubs to come to the college and we'll educate them, but work with them as Slough youth team, which is what we did do. And we... We reproduced players back into the game. So a guy called Lloyd Awusu would probably be the most yeah. famous one. Yeah. Uh, Lloyd was with us and then went, went back into the game at Brentford and did, did exceptionally well. Um, and then totally out of the blue, I got a phone call um, from Paul Power at the PFA. And uh, he was head of, the, head of the coaching department at the PFA at the time. And he said, would I be interested in being one of their regional coaches? So I said, well, yes, obviously I would do. So I went for an interview and Brian Talbot uh, uh, got the job. And then a few months later, three or four months later, he took the job at Rushton and Diamonds. And I got a, a phone call uh, from, um, uh, uh, from the PFA again uh, saying, would I still be interested in doing it? I said, yes. So I went up there and, did, uh, and I did nine years at the PFA, working in and around the PFA as a co you know, working with the football clubs. Um, uh, starting really my my coaching proper coaching career really uh, but when you think about it all the stuff that went on previously as a player was part of stuff leading up to that um, and learning all these different things and seeing what other players do and how they do it etc etc and playing in a team where uh, John Lyle gave us ownership of what we did on the football field because there was never anything like a, a technical area where, the, where the, co the coaches and managers stood, he sat down on the bench and let us get on with it. You know, and, uh, you know, I can't ever remember him raising his voice to us in any way, shape or form, either before pre uh, halftime or in the end of the game. And, you know, it was, uh, he, he had a massive influence on my career throughout from being a footballer also through to coaching as well, because of the way he portrayed himself and the way he, he dealt with players, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I then did nine years at the PFA and then um, uh, after about seven years or so uh, of working at the PFA, I got involved with uh, some, some friends of mine uh, to raise some money uh, for a local hospice. One of the, one of the guys, his um, uh, mother-in-law had been in the hospice and sadly passed away and he wanted to give something back. So there's four, four of us. Uh, got involved in this charity uh, fundraising events that we put up and we did it for many, many years afterwards. And on one of the events, because um, I was working at the PFA, I was up at Ipswich, which was one of my clubs, and I popped in to see John, rung him up and said, can I come and see you? And he said, yeah, of course you can. 
So I went in and spoke to him because I wanted to, him, him and his wife Yvonne to come to one of the charity functions, which he kindly agreed to. Um, and while I was there and where we were chatting, he said to me, um, it's people like you that should be working at the FA. So I took that literally because John had had an influence on my career since I'd been 10 years of age. And I'd walk, walk gone through the whole football club with him being, um, you know, a role model, et cetera, et cetera, and understanding and watching and observing him. And it took me five interviews to get a job at the FA in the end because I was determined to. Um, and then we got into, the, into that and worked there for, for 13 years. Um, so in, in total, um, and funnily enough, I mean, the, the, the experience I had was I'd left Lake Orient um, as, a, as a youth team coach, got the sack and got a phone call from the London FA, a guy called Alex Welsh, who run the uh, uh, London FA, said, would I be interested in delivering a, a prelim course, which is the equivalent to a level two course, without any um, uh, training or anything like that, just come along and do it. So that was my first experience of, of coach education. But I'd gone through all that other stuff. And, you know, it, it was one of those things where you go, well, I've been given the youth coach's job. What do I do? Well, I'll do something that I think is most appropriate, uh, which I, actually I like doing. Not yeah. because of what they needed. It was because I could do it because I experienced it and it was something that I liked doing. And I think most people go through that stage. Uh, but it, it, over the years, it's been, you know, it, it, there's been a lot of... Uh, a uh, lot of ups, a lot, lot of downs, but, you know, some some great experiences. Yeah, and, it, you know, it's been fantastic to to talk to you. And um, just just wondered if you could bring us right up to to speed about what, what you're doing now. What, what are you up to these days? Um, well, I, I, uh, I left the FA, um, uh, where are we, 2021, 20, uh, Christmas 2019. Uh, so I've been almost two years now out of the FA, um, basically uh, semi-retired, Mark. Um, but semi-retired has, has allowed me to become, basically put on my, on my LinkedIn uh, page, I'm down as a, a football coaching consultant, you know, so I, I basically work for myself. Um, and I've had experiences now of, work, of going out to um, Saudi Arabia, I've been out there three times now uh, and delivered uh, uh, the equivalent to a UA4A qualification out there, um, helping them get accreditation from the AFC, which is the equivalent to UEFA. Um, they then wanted me to go back and do the next level, which is the pro license, but unfortunately I've not been able to, to work that out with them. Um, I've been to Dubai twice to deliver an FA international license level three ironically, for the, on behalf of the FA out in Dubai. Um, and uh, um, I'm going next week, I'm flying out to uh, Abu Dhabi to deliver a course to 80 uh, plus uh, teachers who are the ones that get uh, lumbered with the, the school team at the end of the day and they didn't know, don't know how to work it and don't know how to do it. So I'm putting, uh, we've got two courses, one this weekend and one next weekend. And there's another guy going out this weekend to deliver the other one for, uh, for us. Um, while I'm out there, uh, I'm doing a, a webinar for the Bangladeshi FA, uh, a guy called Paul Smalley, who I used to work with uh, at the FA and funnily enough was a team teammate of mine at Notts County when I was there. Uh, and, um, uh, he's now technical director of the Bangladeshi FA and has asked me to do a, 
uh, a module for them on their on their pro license, which I'm doing from Abu Dhabi as long as I can get there on time. Um, and then uh, there's a guy who I've re recently spoke to, who I worked with uh, at the FA uh, a few years back now, who's uh, um, doing the technical director's job out in the Philippines and has asked me to go out there next year to deliver their A license, their very first A license for them. So I'm getting about the getting getting around, Mark. I'm getting around and doing the world uh, and doing some trips elsewhere. Uh, uh, hopefully, the pandemic won't uh, will, won't stop me from doing these types of things. Um, I've also got involved with some stuff in in the UK. There's a a, a company called Coach QA, uh, which is a, a mentoring a coach mentoring program, um, which we're, we're delivering or hopefully uh, engaging people from. Canada, the US, and potentially Dubai as well, uh, so they can they can link in and we can uh, we can work with them remotely on that. And we're hoping to. We uh, there's been a pilot recently, uh, which has gone very well, and we're hoping to expand a little bit on that over the next over the coming months, years, etc. Um, so there's little there's little bits going on, Mark, uh, and you know it, it allows me to do some other things which I've not been able to do being full time. At the FA or PFA, you know, so I see my grandchildren as often as I possibly can, and you know, we we hopefully can get away and do a bit do a bit of stuff ourselves, my wife and I. Well, Jeff, it's been great to have you on as a, a guest. Thanks for your time and for telling us about your your journey in football and your your experiences. Uh, it's, it's been my pleasure. It, it, you know, I mean, it's 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 nice to. It's nice to remember these types of things. I, I will tell you one more thing, and yeah. uh, I hope you don't mind, but um, uh, over the period of time, I've worked with a number of people, you know, high, high flyers, you know, sort of big names within the game. Um, and I, I, th I thank them for that. And thank, thankfully, I've had the opportunity to do that. But I'll just tell you this story. Uh, my wife and I enjoy going to the theatre in London. And we'd gone to the theatre one evening. They're going back, this is going back must be 18 months, two years now. And, um, We'd been to the theatre and we'd got back to Stratford Station and uh, we'd come down on the platform and there was a guy there that I hadn't seen for a period of time that had done a level three or UA for B qualification with me when I was at the PFA many years before. Um, the, the qualification from day one to when you, when you complete it, you've got a three year time span. And he phoned me up or sent me a, a, a picture of him with a big smile on his face three weeks before the three years was up to say that he'd passed it, passed his B license. Uh, and this guy was standing on the station, on the platform. And he, he saw me as I came down the stairs with my wife and he came over and he was a little bit worse for wear, I have to say, he'd had a couple of drinks, but he was on the wrong platform. And you know, he needed to get somewhere and he was definitely on the wrong platform. So I directed him to the other platform and he turned around to my wife and he said to her, um, I have to tell you this, but this man changed my life. Richard uh, uh, then went from there and done, got on his train and went home. And I've not spoke to him since, but I've seen him on LinkedIn, et cetera, et cetera. But the, the, that meant more to me, him saying that, than all the top people that I've worked with over the years, because they've got, uh, they've got a head start. He didn't have a head start. He had to start from scratch. And to, to be able to have that, um, that testimony is, you know, is, is fantastic. And I, I thank him for that. But I just wanted to finish with that because it's not about the big names sometimes. It's about 
helping people achieve what they want to achieve. And that's my well, job. Yeah, well, really appreciate that, Jeff. And and as I say, been been great to have you on as a as a guest and someone with so much experience and so many great memories. So thank you. My pleasure. And now I'm joined by Megan Stone. And Megan has been a part of the media team at Plymouth Argyle since 2017. So welcome, Megan. And I'd like to start by asking you if you were a Plymouth fan before you joined the club. So funnily enough, I wasn't. Um, my dad took me to a few games when I was younger, but it was actually joining the club that sort of made me fall in love with it. You, you studied journalism at, at university in, in Plymouth. Were you looking to work specifically for a football club or were you looking more broadly at a, um, a role in sports journalism? Um, originally, it was just a, a general thing. I wanted to get into journalism. Um, and it was actually back in year 10 in secondary school that we first kind of got pushed to do work experience. And I didn't have a clear. I just knew I wanted to write. didn't know where to go. So I was looking through this website they gave us and... Plymouth Argyle came up and I thought mm, might please my dad you know like yeah, give it a go and um, did that for a week and just absolutely loved it so went back again a couple of years later for some more work experience and just kind of been there ever since first firstly on a voluntary role and then got my foot in for a permanent position. So what does the role actually involve I think your, your uh, title if you like is media assistant is that right? Yeah so um when I first started, I did more social media things. So um, I ran their Instagram account, did sort of the build up to the match on a match day and things like that. And then um, they gave me the opportunity to do a couple of match reports. So I did them. And then ever since then, it's been more um, post-match interviews that I've transcribed and put into pieces and things like that that go on the main website. So that's sort of the general things that I do for them. And is it mostly about the, the men's first team or do you get involved in all aspects of the club? So the, the younger age groups, the women's and girls teams as well, or is it mostly the, the men's first team? It is mostly the first team. I've done coverage for the youth team when we had a good FA Cup, or they had the FA Youth Cup run. They had a really good one. So I did some social media coverage for that. Um, and I'm dying to do something for the women's team. So I'm hoping they start to build on that a bit more now that they're sort of playing on the on the pitch and get a bit of a name for themselves so I'm hoping I can get in there soon. And, and obviously you've got a specific role there so it's um, you know my background's in sports journalism but I started off at a newspaper you know before all the kind of social media um, was even thought of um, so it's obviously changed so much um, but I, I, I guess part of what you do is is helping the club to maintain links with the, the local community and, and the Plymouth area. Um, you know, how important of a um, part of your role is that? I don't think I've not got a specific role to do with, you know, maintaining that connection, but I think the club do a great job anyway. You know, they've set up the partnership with Her Game 2, which is that charity for women in football, which I think is incredible. Um, and I actually know one of the co-owners of that, so for them to have that, I, I think it's really good because it's nice to see the women that come to football on their own or, you know, men that bring their little little daughters and things. I just think it's such a nice, nice thing for them to do. And I think it's really important. And, I'm, and it's one of the things that the chairman said that he wants the club to be, because obviously Plymouth in comparison to other cities is really small. Don't really have any other EFL football clubs, the closest one's Exeter. 
So it's really important to make sure the whole community feels sort of connected to the football club in like on and off the pitch, really. And do you get to deal with the external media or, or is it just, uh, you know, internal content that you're doing for the website and social media? Um, so I've been to a few of the press days and I've sort of helped the the head media officer with sort of organising the external press and making sure they know where they're going and things like that. So I've had quite a few things to do with them and they've always been really good. I always got nervous being around them in case they felt all like, the only girl here but they're all really lovely and I think it's kind of past the times now where people think women shouldn't be involved I think it's starting to get to the point now where they are getting more involved so it's great to be a part of it. And I was going to ask you about that do you do you have the, the feeling do you get the sense that there are enough opportunities for for women in roles like this in uh, you know at football clubs and in football in general? From what I've experienced I think it's getting better Um, so we had um, a girl with us last season um who's now gone off to work at Brantford so she's doing really well for herself so I think there are a lot more opportunities than there were in the past um which again I think is brilliant because you know football's for everyone not just for men so it's, it's really good to see and you're obviously just at the start of your your career where where would you like to um take your career from here like I mentioned I'm hoping there might be something I'll go when I finish my course in April or whenever it is. But if not, I'm you know I'm happy with anything. I just need to get looking really because I'm <laughs> it's near the end now. So and yeah, yeah, and, and um, I just wanted to kind of finish off by asking you what what the best part of of the role is because obviously for for many people, especially football fans, you know, working for a football club would be a dream job. What what's the best part of the role for you? I think just sort of the feel-good factor at the club at the minute, obviously, we're on quite a good run. Got great chairman, good manager, do you know what I mean? It's, it's such a family feel at the minute, and I just think being in and around it's just one of the best feelings I've had. Being so involved with everybody, getting on with the players, it's just it's something that not everyone will get to do, so I feel really privileged to be able to do it. And you definitely, obviously, you said at the start you weren't really a fan before you started, but you're most definitely a, a fan now, are you? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right. And, and do you get, if you're just finally, before I let you go, if you're in the media role, do you actually get to, to watch the games or are you too busy doing other stuff? I'm quite lucky, actually. So I get to finish what I'm doing on a match day just before kickoff and then start it again after kickoff. So I get to watch it. So I'm quite lucky in that sense, to be fair. All right, Megan, well, I wish you luck with everything. Hope you, uh, fingers crossed, you get that, that full-time position at, at the end of everything. And uh, yeah, thanks for, for coming on and being a guest. Yeah, thank you for having me. So now it's time for football fans from around the world. And I'm joined by a Leeds United fan, Anders, in Norway. Hello, Anders. Welcome to the show. And thank you very much. I'd like to start, as I always do, by asking you when and why did you start supporting Leeds? I started supporting Leeds uh, when I was like 19 years old, back in the 70s. Uh, they showed um, English football on national television in Norway, uh, strangely enough, live. So um, we just started to support an English team. Everybody chose a team. We had the playing cards and we had the, the trading cards and the, and, the, and the shoot magazine and everything. And I, I just chose Leeds because I, I love the kids and um, and Peter uh, Lormer and, and Billy Bremner and all the players. And... Uh, 
but sometimes I, I kind of think that leads chose me instead of I chose them. Fair enough. That's a good way of looking at it. And um, you mentioned a couple of players already, but who, who would you say is your favourite Leeds player in all the time that you supported them? It is Peter Lormer. Uh, he's my uh, he's my favourite player. He was the reason for me to, you know, kind of start supporting Leeds, I think, because there, there was some kind of mystery aura about him. You know, he had the hardest um, shot in, in, in football. You know, he, he broke the... Uh, the post and uh, you know shot a, a keeper in the stomach, so he had to go to the the hospital. And you know you had all these stories about him, so it was kind of um, a good thing for uh, for a young kid to to have uh, a hero like him uh, on your bedroom wall. Uh, and of course, Leeds had some great success back in the days when you first became a supporter. You've had a long time out of the Premier League. What was that like as a as a Leeds fan? Well, actually, they were not in the Premier League because the Premier League was not uh, was not there in the you know in the beginning of the seventies. And and actually, when I started, you know, really supporting them in seventy five, they they were actually, you know, going a little bit down. You know, they lost the uh, Bayern Munich final, uh, and um, and and they had this you know downslide. Uh, it was tough for many years. I mean, you you. In Norway, we didn't have any newspapers on Sunday, so we had to wait until the newspaper on Monday to see how it um, how it was going with Leeds, especially when they were in the second division, you know, in the eighties. So it was it was tough, but um, but still, you know, when 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 a team comes into your heart, it stays there. And then, obviously, as you said, you had that um, title-winning season, and then you know, uh, long time out of the Premier League, and, and you're back now. Um, what What's it finally um, like being back in the Premier League last season for you as a Leeds fan? And I know actually you, we, we spoke before this and you get over to, to quite a lot of games in, in Leeds, don't you? Yeah, uh, well, it was, first of all, it was kind of, you know, kind of hard not to be there to celebrate, you know, the promotion, um, you know, in, in the spring of uh, 2020. But um but that's the way it was, um, and um, so we had to follow it on 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 the telly from from Norway. And uh, um, of course, it was good to see them uh, back in the uh, back with the with the you know the top teams. So um, it made me you know both happy and proud, and a little bit sad that I couldn't follow them and see them. Of course, in their first first season back in in sixteen years, but. Um, then luckily I've been uh, able to be, you know, uh, come over uh, this season and uh, I was there at the first home game against Everton. Um, it was great atmosphere, uh, you know, and um, so good to see them, um, you know, back with a packed house and and, and the Premier League uh, kind of vibe. And in terms of this season so far, you haven't, it's fair to say, started as well as you did in your first season back last time. Um, what what do you make of the season so far? Well, I think we kind of um, we haven't really clicked. Uh, we have been a little bit unfortunate with um, with injuries, and um, and some of the players we have brought in has not been you know really into the team yet. So um, I just feel it's um, it's a potential there for uh, for something, but uh, it's not been you know clicking really um there's some of the um the play uh that we have especially the offensive play that uh, that we are not uh, getting at so um hopefully they can um they can have uh, bamford now back for good and um 
then we will be um, you know taking some points. Um, of course, the last two games was you know very special as we we scored you know very late, um, and and uh, one of them was a winner and the other one got us a point. So um, so I we just have to believe uh, it, it's always tough for the second season. Um, so we just have to hang in there and uh, and establish us. Uh, you know, around mid-table or lower mid-table. Um, and I think we'll be fine for the uh, for the Premier League uh, next season as well. And you mentioned Patrick Bamford. How important is he as a player, not just as a goal scorer? I think it's, it's important because he's, um, you know, a part of the Bielsa style is the, is the high pressure uh, and the high pressing. And and, and he, it starts with uh, with uh, Patrick Bamford up there. Um so his uh, his um, playing uh, and and pressing uh, has been you know important for our style I think so uh, we have been missing him um, but um, you just had to cope with uh, injuries I mean uh, it's part of the game so uh, last season we were kind of lucky uh, we didn't have that much injuries um, especially not on the key players but this season we've had um, a fair share I think so uh, hopefully. We could have a few a few ones back now, and uh, it was good to see Ailing, Luke Ailing, and 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 Bamford back on the uh, on the pitch on um, on Sunday. And before we move on to a prediction for where Leeds will finish, just want to ask you about Rafina. He's you know one of the standout players in in the Premier League, not just Leeds. What are your thoughts about him, and you know what will you be able to keep hold of him? Do you think? Amazing player, amazing player. Uh, we have been lucky to uh, to sign him, and uh, he's really, you know, lifted the um, the spirit for uh, for Leeds, I think, and uh, and the um, some of the young kids they get attracted to uh, you know that kind of player. So uh, hopefully he will. He is the reason for bringing in some new fans as well. So it's it's important to have a player like that uh, in your team. Um, if we are able to hold on him, well, hold on to him. It's it's kind of difficult to say. Um, it's always like that in in modern football. Uh, you have players coming and going, and and sometimes you have to sell a player if he if he can if he can bring in a, a lot of money. I mean, if you look at Leicester, uh, they've sold a lot of you know good players uh, during the years with Maris and, uh, and Kante and uh, Maguire and all, all those players. So. Uh, if you're, if you, you have to be smart. I mean, you have to, uh, you have to run the club in a in a sound financial way, also. So, um, and we we don't have any, you know, big oil investors behind us. Uh, we should have had the Norwegian government behind uh, Leeds United because uh, we got a lot of oil. But um, <laughs> but I I don't think they will uh, they will invest in the football club. Okay, and then just finally, um, what's your prediction for where? Leeds will will finish this season. My heart um, is hoping for uh, you know like ten, a ten, you know, number ten, and um, my brain is more like you know fourteen, fifteen. Okay, well, so uh, somewhere, somewhere, you know, in between, maybe still a long way to to go. But you you think definitely not a relegation threat for Leeds. I hope not. I hope not. All right, Anders. Well, great to great to meet you, and uh, thanks for joining us. Early Doors Football Podcast for football fans worldwide.
If you want to get in touch with Mark and the rest of the team, you can reach them on earlydoors at forthenow.co.uk.